Today's show is supported by Provider Solutions and Development. Their entire business is finding clinicians better jobs by asking how their work fits into who they are. Reach out to the holistic career coaching experts at psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And Paul, that sweet, sweet silence without interruption, that means that Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham is not here tonight. We, of course, miss him greatly. This, of course, is the Curbsiders. This is a COVID cake show where we'll be covering a bunch of topics. And we have with us the great Dr. Rahul Ganatra, who is our resident expert on critical appraisal. Paul, would you remind the audience... Uh, what is it we do on this show? And uh, maybe remind them about getting credit for listening to it. Sure, happy to. As a reminder, Matt, and I, I have to say, it's actually, it's enjoyable to watch me watch you. So let me take that over. It's enjoyable to watch you trip up in the absence of being interrupted by Stuart. It's something I enjoy every time that he's not with us. You're, just, you're not quite sure what to do with yourself as you're waiting for the, the shoe to drop. But in any case, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. Most of the time we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Sometimes the experts are us, even though we are not experts. Um, most of us are not experts. I think I think we all agree that Rahul will count as an expert. Um, but we're going to be talking about um, recent articles and discussions about topics about COVID. Uh, and Matt will tell us more about that. Before he does, a reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Go to that website, sign up for an account. It is easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And next thing you know, you have CME credit. But anyway, Matt, tell us what we're doing this specific episode. Sure, Paul. On tonight's show, we talked about the famous, or I should say infamous, Dan Mask 19 study, which is going to tell us uh, whether or not we should be uh, recommending people wear a mask. Uh, more on that later. And uh, also, we will be talking about the COVID anticoagulation or VTE guidelines, both treatment and prevention. We talked with our friend, Dr. Parth Raleigh, for some insight as he was on the guidelines committee for CHEST. And then finally, we talk a little bit about COVID testing and the the new home test kit that's available. We were going to do more on that, but Stuart is not able to be here tonight. So maybe on a future COVID cake show, we'll talk a little bit more about testing. And so without further ado, let's get on to some picks of the week. Paul, would you like to start us off with a pick of the week? Sure, I'll, I'll do an easy one. Um, as, as we may or may not have mentioned on the show, I don't drink alcohol, and yet I still deeply love beer, which is, uh, I'm, I'm a mystery wrapped in enigma, so forth and so on. Um, and so it's for a long time, and I, I think I mentioned this before, there's just been nothing but just hot garbage for non-alcoholic beers. But there's actually, in the past couple of years, been a bunch of really good ones to come out. And one company in particular, Athletic Brewing Company, yes. really... Yeah, series like tasty series of beers. The most recent one that I picked up is the Aftershift Crisp IPA. It is a collaboration done with Chef Chris Cosentino. So if you're a Food Network fan, um, as myself, uh, you might recognize the name. It is uh, this delightful IPA. It is brewed with bay bay leaves and lemon verbena, and it is light and refreshing, delicious, and and tastes like beer. So if you like beer but don't like alcohol, might I recommend Athletic Brewing Company the Aftershift uh, IPA? It is a delight. 
This episode brought to you by our sponsor, Athletic Brewing Company. Oh my God. Yeah, we're right here. It's just waiting for us to pick it up. So call us, uh, DM me on Twitter. Yeah, I think we could. I think we could advertise non-alcoholic beer. I, I'm not sure uh, how our our CME sponsors would feel about us <laughs> us advertising alcohol at the show. I'm happy to do it as a sideline. Like it doesn't have to be curbsiders. Like I realize without you, I'm nothing. But also, you know, I was still promoted <laughs> um, to the four people who pay attention to me. I can't believe we almost didn't talk about this. I too have tried uh, this non-alcoholic beer, and I think it's just delightful. And I'm and I'm glad you picked it. Rahul, what's your pick of the week? So I finally have a pick of the week that is better than like, you know, autumn leaves or just kind of some <laughs> standard part of the the season. So, uh, you know, this is kind of a, a challenging time for everybody. Uh, everyone needs some positivity in their lives. Uh, and I recently stumbled onto the uh, YouTube rabbit hole or genre, if you will, of uh, working at home fails. Um, and this is just the most humanizing thing in the world. It's like a bunch of clips of people working at home, being interrupted by their children, their pets, uh, various uh, people who don't realize their cameras are still on and microphones unmuted. <laughs> and it's just delightful. It's it's a great way to spend, you know, five or 10 minutes killing time. I highly recommend uh, going down that rabbit hole. It's very uplifting. That sounds enjoyable. Uh, Deb, our producer, Deb, who will uh, be off air for most of this, but we we have to give her a chance to shout out here. Deb, what is your what was your pick of the week? And you are recording from an undisclosed location, <laughs> but a very cool location. <laughs> recorded from my bunker. My my pick of the week is Dolly Parton. So everything Dolly Parton does, Dolly would, but most specifically recently, Dolly Parton's contribution to the coronavirus vaccine, and so. It was recently published that she helped fund the Moderna vaccine for coronavirus. So if you're looking for another reason to love Dolly Parton, there is one. Well, I didn't need more reasons right. to love Dolly Parton, but I my pick of the week actually goes along with this. I On Fresh Air, which is a show uh, recorded in hometown of Philadelphia, which is fantastic. If you haven't heard it, you should listen to it. It's It's an NPR show and podcast. Uh, Terry Gross had on Dr. Peter Hotez, who's from Baylor. He's a, a pediatrician, I believe, and a vaccine researcher and is actually working on a COVID vaccine that's a low-cost vaccine. They're going to be putting out like 1.2 billion vaccines in India, something ridiculous like that. And, and the vaccine he's working on is specifically using like what he said was older technology so that countries that are already used to making vaccines, some of the older vaccines, will be able to make this COVID vaccine. And that's expected sometime in uh, mid mid twenty twenty one or spring twenty twenty one. But what I thought was great about what he said about vaccines was he said that when the vaccine's available, he will take any FDA approved vaccine that's available to him. He said that like in the future, if we realize that one of the vaccines is better than the others, then you could always get a booster. But at this time, just get everyone vaccinated uh, with whatever FDA approved vaccines available to you. And then the other big thing that he said was, he said, please just tell your family, tell your friends, this is just a matter of staying disciplined for the next couple of months so we can get everyone safely through this. We now have a light at the end of the tunnel. We should have like multiple vaccines, like six vaccines or something like that by, you know, uh, June of next year or some, somewhere in that time frame. And uh, I will link to it in the show notes, but I really think everyone should listen to this this just absolute vaccine expert talking about this and uh, giving some hope to what is right now is not 
it is it's not feeling too great just around here, Paul. A, a dystopian hellscape. I will say about <laughs> um, the Dolly Parton thing. Like she is just such a uniformly good human being. I feel like almost any other celebrity if you heard they contributed towards saving mankind, you'd be like, that's fantastic. But Dolly Parton, it was just sort of like, oh, that tracks. Like that makes <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course it was her. Who else is gonna save us? For physicians, this hasn't been an easy time in an already challenging profession. If you're looking for a new position or just starting to imagine what's out there, our sponsor, Provider Solutions and Development, helps people like you find their next job. For 20 years, they've taken the holistic approach to career coaching that starts with listening to what you're looking for in the clinic and outside of it, and then finding the role that fulfills you. With exclusive access to hundreds of open positions across the country, they're ready to guide you toward the job you really want, from residency all the way to retirement. Get in touch after this show and start a conversation at psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. Well, Paul, you are you are leading us off tonight with uh, with the help of Rahul, but I know you're going to present him an article here, and Rahul has famously tweeted about this already, but uh, why don't you set this up for the audience in case they, they are not familiar with it? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, so the... The reason I initially became interested in this article is on Twitter one day I was scrolling through and a bunch of people that I respect and I, I really admire um, were all saying the same thing about how brave the Annals of Internal Medicine was for publishing this article on masks. And my immediate knee-jerk reaction was, oh no, what have they done? Um, and so I had to chase it down almost immediately out of a sense of panic just to find out why there would be a brave article about masks to read about. And so this is the article that I'm, I'm here to present and have Rahul help me to discuss because I'm not quite sure what to do with what was studied. And I, I need help from you all here. So this is um, probably, is it the most recent uh, annals? We'll, we'll say that it is, but it's the effectiveness of adding a mask recommendation to other public health measures to prevent SARS-CoV-2 infection in Danish mask wearers, a randomized controlled trial by Bundgaard et al. And so basically the, the background for this is, and in, in, in the introduction, they talk about how there is observational evidence that supports the efficacy of masks in healthcare settings. And there is also maybe some observational evidence for source control uh, for COVID-19 wearing masks. So in, in other words, the patients who wear masks are less likely to spread COVID to other people, if I'm understanding. So there's not as much observational evidence that shows that masks actually prevent you from contracting COVID. Um, so this is sort of the background that they were coming from. And the question that they asked, um, and it's very specific, and I just want to make sure that I word this correctly, is does the recommendation to wear a surgical mask, not does wearing a surgical mask, but does the recommendation to wear a surgical mask when outside the home, among others, <laughs> reduce the wearer's risk for COVID infection in a setting where public health measures are in place, but mask wearing was uncommon? So it's this very specific combination of circumstances that they're asking a question about. And again, it's the intervention is the recommendation and not the mask. And the setting is a population that does not wear masks. Um, but there is background COVID infection, although the prevalence actually seems to kind of matter a little bit when we're talking about this. I, to interrupt your flow, Paul, and I apologize, Stuart's not here, so someone had to do it. <laughs> uh -huh. What we in the medical field right now, what's happening in hospitals is everyone's wearing a mask, everyone in the hospital, all the patients, all the staff, regardless of their infection, to and from the cars, inside, outside, everyone's wearing masks. And that's not what this was. Correct. Correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. So it's, in terms of that, that leads to sort of the context and the design. So this was an unblinded randomized controlled trial because you can't do blinded mask wearing, I don't think. I just can't imagine a circumstance where that's a possible <laughs> thing to do. So so that, that limited them somewhat. 
And it was done in Denmark. That's what makes it a Danish mass study um, between April 3rd to June 2nd. And during that time period, it's really important to note, and this is why this is really an interesting sort of natural study that they did, that mask use was very uncommon outside the hospital at that time. This is less than 5% of the population um, compared to what our normal is right now, or a bit, well, I'd like to say everyone's wearing masks, but a lot of people are wearing masks. Um, and at the time, mask wearing wasn't even recommended by the Danish public health department. They recommended quarantining patients with infections. They recommended social distancing. They recommended hand hygiene, but they were not recommending wearing masks during that time period. So the, the prevalence of background mask wearing was really low, which I also think is kind of interesting. And also worth noting at that time, restaurants were closed about midway through the study until, until May. So about halfway through the actual um, study occurring. So the population they looked at or they recruited from were adults, so 18 years or older. They did not; they were not allowed to have COVID symptoms because it seems silly to re recruit someone who has an active COVID infection and slap a mask on them, I guess, if you're trying to detect incidents of acquiring the COVID infection. And then the other qualifying criteria is they had to be outside the home for at least three hours of their day and didn't normally wear masks as part of their jobs. And the intervention itself was this one-to-one -one, um, randomization to a control group versus a group that was told to wear masks, and they received 50 surgical masks in the mail. Both groups, whether they were randomized to advise to wear masks or not, received oropharyngeal or nasal swaps for PCR testing to be done at one month or if symptoms should come up. And then they also, just as an aside, if they got sick, they were supposed to seek medical attention. So I think that's um, a good and humane thing to do. And then the other part of it was they received uh, point of care antibody testing, which I thought was really interesting, to be done um, upon receipt of the tests, which were sent um, through certified mail and then to be done one month later. And so I think I want to pause here and actually ask you, Rahul, about the serologic testing and sort of the use of it in the study. And if you could just talk broadly about um, positive predictive value, if, if you're comfortable doing so at this point in the show. I would be happy to. Um, the point that you make about, um, you know, describing how infection was diagnosed in this trial is really important. And the nearest I can tell from reading the package insert in the supplementary material for the trial is that uh, everybody in the study was basically sent a kit that contained the swabs to collect um, the PCR specimens and then also a uh, finger stick sort of lancet thing uh, and then a, uh, a strip test uh, for the antibody. So the antibody testing is, you can think of it as kind of a combo between like a finger stick blood glucose and a home pregnancy test. So what they basically did was patients in the study would prick their finger, get a drop of blood, put it on this strip of paper, add a developer drop, and then, you know, over a period of a few minutes, they would uh, see immediately whether or not uh, the antibody was positive. Now let's talk a little bit about why the test characteristics matter for uh, detecting sources of bias in this study. So if you look at their table two, you can see that the vast majority of infections in the study were diagnosed by the antibody test. It was like 75%, I think, um, were diagnosed on the basis of a positive IgG or IgM. So now we have to ask ourselves, is there any way in which the use of antibody testing could uh, create a bias in the study, either towards uh, the null or away from the null? So the positive predictive value is the thing we care about here. And the reason that this matters is because at the time the study was done, uh, COVID infection was actually pretty rare in Denmark. And in settings where you have a rare outcome, tiny, tiny decreases in the specificity of a test, if it's much less than 100%, can actually make the positive predictive value decline dramatically. And just to make sure I'm not saying anything that is too crazy too out there, when I say positive predictive value, I mean the proportion of tests that, if positive, truly mean that somebody has the infection. 
Do you guys buy that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what you're putting down. This is great so far. So, okay. So at a prevalence of 2%, I did some calculations. Uh, they report the, well, first I'll say they report the sensitivity and specificity uh, in the, of the antibody assay in the paper. Uh, sensitivity of about 82.5 and a specificity of 99.5. Um, at a population prevalence of 2%, the positive predictive value from those numbers is 77. Um, but if you look at the test characteristics that the FDA reported, which Tom Frieden kind of described in the editorial that accompanied this paper, the specificity was just 2% lower, 97.5%. But the positive predictive value in that case falls to 40%. And a positive predictive value of less than 50 means that we should expect that the majority of infections diagnosed this way to actually be false positives. And this is really important. I mean, this is why we, uh, you know, this is why we use two-step HIV testing because uh, for cases where the outcome is quite rare in the general population, for any test with a specificity that's much less than a hundred percent, you have to worry that uh, the vast majority of infections you diagnose that way are going to be false positives. And it is my understanding that the false positives are likely to be uh, distributed evenly between people wearing masks and not wearing masks. I think the, the most common source of those is infection with uh, endemic coronaviruses before the study. So I have no reason to suspect that that would be any different. So that's something that is going to create a bias towards the null and is is one of the things that sort of concerns me about the interpretation of this study. Yeah. Wow. Because like, you know, 97.5% specificity sounds pretty good. Right. But then when you put it, when you do the math and put in those terms, that's a huge difference than if the specificity was 99.5%. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to actually, because I think this ties in, though maybe I'm mistaken, this is, again, why we have a genius here with us, talk about <laughs> how they actually determined how to come up with the sample size. And so the sample size calculation assumed a 2% incidence of COVID at the time. Um, and it also, it, which I, this is the part that I find fascinating, assumed that masks have the risk of acquiring the COVID infection. And then they also accounted for 20% loss to follow up. And so using those numbers decided um, to power with at least 6,000 participants. So I'm just wondering, uh, Rahul, if you could speak to the assumed effect reduction of wearing a mask and how that impacts the statistics that we're talking about now and, and the, the, the conclusions they get to a little bit later on, if you don't mind. That is a great point. I'm so glad you brought it up. Yeah. I mean, we've already talked a little bit about how the incidence of the primary outcome was already somewhat rare at the population level. And surveillance data from Denmark at the time that you can Google uh, indicated that the number of cases was actually decreasing over the course of the study period. So we know that transmission was definitely rare and declining already in the community. Um, the 50% effect size, um, yeah, how do we know that that's a large effect size? I mean, to go from an absolute reduction of 2% to 1% over one month. That's where I'm getting the 50% relative risk reduction. I mean, all we can really do is kind of compare that to other things. And um, the sort of benchmark that um, that I use for this is 50% is the lower uh, estimate of, or the lower limit for the point estimate of vaccine efficacy that the FDA recommended for vaccine-seeking licensure. So this study basically was testing whether a recommendation to wear a mask um, would provide at least as much protection to the wearer as the least effective vaccine the FDA was willing to authorize. So um, just on the basis of those observations alone, knowing that we're looking for a big effect in a setting where the outcome is already rare, right off the bat, just looking at the protocol, that should allow you to anticipate that this has a high likelihood of being a, a negative or an inconclusive study. 
Rahul, what do you think was the biggest contributor to this being a negative study? Yeah, boy, it's hard to pick just one thing because there are multiple sources of bias towards this being an inconclusive study. But powering to find a relatively large effect size, um, you know, the study was powered appropriately for what they thought they would detect. Um, but because that effect size is so large, uh, it, you know, that alone, I think, is, is probably the reason that this was a negative study. It, the, these results are not incompatible with the existence of a more modest effect, like, you know, less than 50% reduction in risk to, uh, or less than 50% reduction in uh, COVID incidents to mask wearers. But because of the way this study was powered to find a much larger effect, we would need way more people in the study to be able to find that. And I think we jumped ahead to the point where we actually didn't talk about um, yeah, the, the results. So where it, it just turns out that there seemed to be no difference between the, I don't think we said this explicitly, between the mask wearers and the control group. So it was 1.8% in the mask group um, acquired a COVID infection, 2.1% in the control group with a confidence interval that was just wild. Um, it was yeah, 0.54 to 1.23 with a p-value of 0.33. So in other words, the range was anywhere from a 46 reduction in infection to mask wearers to a 23% increase in infection of mask wearers. And so I don't even quite know what to do with a confidence interval that wide. And can I, can I just point out, and I, and I kind of hinted to this earlier, I, I feel like mask wearing is, is almost like a network effect. It's like, if one person wears a mask, it's, it's not, we like, it's not going to make a big difference. But if like the whole population is wearing a mask, we think that makes a big difference. And I think some of the proof of that is just that hospitals haven't just been like having COVID rip through from room to room because people are doing social distancing measures, wearing masks all the time. And I think that that's, that's part of why this didn't work because like the, the adherence in the, in the group that was recommended to wear a mask was only 46%. And that's why I feel like, even though we talked about this was like a, we think probably a well done trial overall, uh, it, I just feel like it uh, it kind of missed the mark as far as what behavior as far, at least to me, common sense would say that you just need everybody wearing masks. And that's really what we should be looking at rather than just like recommending that a small percentage of people wear a mask in a, in a culture where they implied this in the paper. It was some people said they like felt stigmatized by having to wear masks because it's like they felt like weirdos, basically. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's my my big question um, that I want to talk about. I realize that we're, we're right up against the time limit here for this particular article, but what am I to do with this? So if, if we're to take this as, as perfectly sound science, um, and then what they're testing is a recommendation to wear a mask, and that's not effective, the logical endpoint would then be to not recommend to wear a mask, which just, it feels like, I feel like we have enough observational data. We actually, there's um, a nice article on uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly that actually looked at counties in Kansas with a mask mandate versus counties that did not have a mask mandate. And just based on um, observational data, the counties that had the mask mandate had a decrease in incidence, the ones that didn't had an increase in incidence. So there's, I feel like other data out there. So I just don't know what way to do with this small piece of the puzzle. I just feel like it was almost maybe not important enough or didn't answer a specific enough question to even really put out there, at least in the form that it was put out. But I, I'm also negative and not that smart. So I, I'd be curious to know what you guys all think about that. This is so good. You guys are not falling into the trap of thinking that because it is a randomized controlled trial, therefore it is the highest standard of evidence and that is what we should do. So I think that the points that you are describing are right on the money. Uh, Matt, you know, you're talking about the sort of network effects and the the social um, influence on whether or not you wear a mask. Um, a lot of people much smarter than I have have really uh, uh, eloquently argued um, for why uh, a different study design 
uh, a cluster randomized trial might be more appropriate for testing what is really a population level recommendation rather than an individual level trial, which this was. Um, and then Paul, the, the question that you're raising about what, you know, are we to do with this? I mean, at the end of the day, the only way to make sense of results like this is ask, you know, have they really tested all of the things that we think uh, we can attribute to mask wearing? And as you pointed out in the beginning, they they didn't uh, test anything about masks for source control in this study. And the the observational um, data that you that you cited from the MMWR, I mean, to me, that's really compelling evidence um, uh, supporting the existence of of a benefit for source control. So just because this was a, a randomized trial and, and a relatively, you know, well done randomized trial for what it was, doesn't mean that because it did not find the effect that we sought, that we should stop wearing masks. I think we have just failed to demonstrate the benefit that's probably there. One of the last things I wanted to say on this is that the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation has these graphs that you can look up. Uh, you can look up at a global level or just like by country. And if you look at the United States, they project out uh, that if we start to ease recommendations or versus if we achieve universal masking, at least 90%, 5% mask wearing, the difference in deaths between now and uh, March, 2021 is like hundreds of thousands of, of deaths difference um, based on these estimates. And so I, I think this is just, showing you what the, like the network effect of everyone wearing masks would do in a visual way. So we can, we can link to that as well in the show notes. Paul, how many hotcakes do you give this article? I'll, I've completely forgotten our scoring system at this point. Um, well, f- five is like, this is practice changing uh, landmark article. And uh, <clears throat> I guess one hotcake is not very good. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it two hotcakes. Like it wasn't, it was put together. Okay. But on the other hand, it didn't, it wasn't quite as satisfying as more hotcakes would be. So we'll, we'll just leave it at that. I, I can't do research. So I respect the people to do so at least two for everybody. And I, I think two is okay here. Any special toppings? It, it, it is the holiday season. Paul. I, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not <laughs> indulging this. this is okay. So to, to round out the show here, we did want to mention the, uh, the anticoagulation guidelines. There's there's a couple different ones out there. We had the good fortune of knowing Dr. Parth Raleigh, who is a pulmonologist and critical care physician at Temple University Hospital. And I actually did an off-air interview with him uh, about the guidelines, which he was involved in writing the guidelines for CHEST. And these are the uh, guidelines for like the treatment and prevention of VTE in patients with COVID-19 infection. And I really just wanted to cite the guidelines that, that apply to those who are acutely ill, not necessarily critically ill, since we are really more of an outpatient or hospitalist geared show, not, not really a critical care show. And the, I should mention the NIH also has their own guideline, which is they, I, I read through both of them and they actually have pretty, pretty uniform agreement. And uh, the spoiler alert up front is that as of right now, you pretty much treat patients with COVID-19 the same way you would treat your normal, acutely ill, hospitalized patients. So DVT prophylaxis, uh, the normal kind you would give to your hospitalized patients. And if someone has a diagnosed or symptomatic venous thromboembolism, DVT, which is DVT or PE, you would treat it with full anticoagulation. But I, I think some of the interesting things uh, that Dr. Rowley had mentioned was he was pleading with the audience, and this is in their guidelines as well, 
not to just put someone on anticoagulation based on a level of D-dimer. Um, and I guess before I get into some of the other recommendations, Paul, I wanted to ask ask you uh, and and then Rahul, you next. What are are you seeing any different practices? Are the patients at your institutions uh, being treated pretty similarly to your other, your general medical patients, or is there a difference in care? Yeah, it's it's a hard question for me to ask as I try to keep myself um, aggressively from inpatient care at this point in my life. I've realized that I just <laughs> I am too tired for it. Um, but I can tell you that on the receiving end, as I get patients back um, into my gentle, loving embrace after they've been hospitalized, it, I mean, it seems fairly consistent with that. I've not gotten anyone returned to me who's been on sort of longstanding anti anticoagulation based on inflammatory markers. Um, so it's it, it seems as if we are adhering to those guidelines, not just sort of uh, wackily anticoagulating sort of after the fact and as much as I can tell. Um, but I'm not as equipped to speak to the inpatient experience because, as I know, as I've mentioned many a time, I'm not trying to avoid it actively if possible. Yeah, I, I think the last time, Rahul, that you all reported on this on a COVID cakes was over the summer. And at that time, it seemed like every institution was doing their own thing. I don't think uh, the the main the, the large guidelines had been been out there yet. What what are you seeing locally? Yeah, I think at our hospital, I can speak for you know our branch of Cashlack Northeast. We are using uh, prophylactic anticoagulation uh, in line with the uh, uh, NIH guidelines. Um, but I do talk to colleagues. Uh, oh, and I should say, and we we are not currently uh, making decisions based on D-dimer or or discharging patients on uh, on long term anticoagulation. So basically, treating uh, patients who are hospitalized with COVID nineteen like medical inpatients for whom we would uh, uh, give prophylactic anticoagulation uh, uh, in, anyway. Um, but I do talk to colleagues from other hospitals, and I still get the sense that. There's a little bit of this feeling of, well, we're seeing a higher rate of thrombosis, um, both arterial and venous in patients who are really sick with COVID-19. So, you know, the guidelines just haven't caught up yet. We're going to do our own thing. So I, I do talk to people who, you know, in intensive care units and community hospitals, I'm aware of, of at least one where, you know, they're full dose anticoagulating all patients with COVID-19, which is, I think, not at this point supported by the evidence. But wow. Yeah, that seems quite aggressive. I, so where this came from for the audience, there was just early reports and there was some autopsy studies. I, I believe some of them were um, came out of New York City where they, they saw increased both microthrombosis and uh, just larger uh, venous thrombo thrombosis in these autopsy studies, even in some patients who had been on prophylactic anticoagulation. So I think that's where the idea comes that it would be beneficial potentially to put people on full anticoagulation. Although we know that uh, you're going to have more bleeding if you have people on full anticoagulation. So what Dr. Raleigh said is that this, uh, the, the, the way that they did the guidelines, they, they developed these PICO questions and then they would assign, it was an international team of people. Some were vascular medicine experts and clotting experts, and some were more frontline clinicians and pulmonologists, which Dr. Raleigh is. And uh, then they would assign a couple of them to review a specific question, and they did systematic reviews. And they tried to look for evidence to make their decisions. It ended up being a very heavily expert opinion, as you might imagine. And uh, they did this modified Delphi where... They, they voted, all the experts voted, and they reached some sort of consensus for the recommendations. So the big recommendations that I wanted to highlight, and some of these are practical, 
they recommended actually using low molecular weight heparin or fondaparinux as the anticoagulant of choice because they're only once a day dosing. Um, and unfractionated heparin is often tw- two or three times a day dosing. They didn't recommend using DOAX for prophylaxis uh, because because that's not as well validated, especially in um, just acutely ill medical patients. And then as far as treatment goes, DOAX received a lower priority than low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin, which I was a little surprised at because in a lot of the times I am using them uh, in my medical patients, especially if I think they're more along the stable line. And I think the reason for that, uh, what Dr. Raleigh said is that Patients with COVID tend to, like, if they clinically deteriorate and they need lots of procedures and things, people are just more comfortable working with unfractionated heparin or Lovenox in those cases and uh, potentially reversing them. And the other thing is that uh, patients with just the instability of patients sick with COVID-19, they could develop kidney injury, and then you worry about the levels with the DOAX. So those are just some practical things that I hadn't thought about as much. And then Paul, do you ever really think of drug-drug interactions with DOACs? Because that was mentioned a couple times in the guidelines. I saw, I, it made me worry that I should think about it more because it's not something that I, I worry too much about on the day-to-day. Yeah, I, I, I did find an article which appeared in uh, Jack that was written this year, 2020. The lead author is Wiggins, and we'll link to that in the show notes. It, it did mention that there is some, uh, particularly with the cytochrome system, there is some concern there. And I think the protease inhibitors... Uh, like which we've used for multiple conditions at this point were were an issue, and remdes- there's some concern that maybe remdesivir would make make the coagulation studies go wild when patients are on a DOAC. Right, and I think I think that was actually when I was reading through the guidelines more the way the concern that I interpreted is that these patients are more likely to be on these weird cocktails of medications just because we're still figuring things out, yeah. and it's just it, yeah, we just so, have more experience with the other agents. So what Dr. Raleigh basically said is if you have someone and you're treating them for symptomatic venous thromboembolism in the hospital, use use one of the injectable heparin agents. But when you discharge them and they're stable, uh, it makes more sense as an outpatient to just give them a pill instead of sending them home with injections. So you can use the DOAX at that point. And if they were getting remdesivir, they should be be done with it at, at that time. And I remember logistically that makes sense too, right? Because someone yeah. has to teach the patients how to do self-injections and they'll have to take care of it at home. And, and oftentimes with these patients, because of the quarantine and the isolation just becomes hard to manage. So I think it right. just also makes sense logistically too. So the next question we talked about was this standard dose versus intermediate dosing. And what he told me is that th- this is a living document, this guideline, and that he expects there's multiple trials right now, some of which we'll link to uh, at clinicaltrials.gov. They're, they're looking at intermediate versus standard dosing for uh, DVT, like prophylaxis. And he thinks maybe that, that there might be positive studies. It, it may be different in the acutely ill medical patients versus the, those who are critically ill. But that as of right now, whether they're critically ill or just your run-of-the-mill uh, admitted hospital, hospitalized patient, they're, they're just recommending standard dose. And as Rahul mentioned... At this time, we're not recommending sending people out on anticoagulation or even DVT prophylaxis unless they have a known clot. So there, th- this extended duration thing, which early on, uh, some of the places, um, I've worked in a couple places in the recent past, and some of them were actually doing that for a while, and it just seemed like it was a constant moving target. But as of right now, we don't have the evidence to do that, and uh, that's not really recommended. 
I have had a very hard time keeping up with all of the ongoing clinical trials in this area, but uh, there is a uh, apparently an arm of the recovery trial that is testing uh, uh, aspirin for patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19. So there um, is at least one, you know, high quality ongoing uh, trial that is going to shed light on the question of, you know, how does our uh, manipulation of the coagulation axis uh, affect outcomes in patients with COVID-19. And I'm sure there's um, other, you know, studies here in the United States that I'm just less familiar with. So stay tuned. So Stuart was supposed to be here tonight and we were supposed to have another segment on testing that uh, Stuart had an emergency, so he's not here tonight. Basically, the only thing I wanted to point out on testing is that there is a home test kit that you might have seen in the news in the past week or so. It is, I tried to look it up, and it doesn't, I, I'm not exactly sure how easy it would be for patients to find it, but there is a home test kit. It's a PCR test. The patient swabs themselves. They swirl it around in this vial. They put it, they, they, uh, the machine runs the test. And within 30 minutes, it gives them an answer whether or not they have COVID. And I don't know how much it costs. I couldn't really find much on that, but it did receive an an authorization from the FDA to be used at home. I I don't know how much this is going to change things. Rahul, have you seen anybody using this? And what do you think about the practicality of of this specific test? I I think it's a single-use test. Yeah, I, I really haven't yet. Um, I mean, it, it is encouraging on the one hand to see, um, you know, more and more assays kind of go through the process of obtaining FDA approval. But, you know, I my uh, bias is I, I'm very influenced by the school of thought that makes a compelling argument for the, the use of repeated testing at home. Even if the sensitivity is low, if we are able to really shorten the turnaround time, that change over what we're doing now is something that really could stem the tide in this outbreak. So I'm, you know, waiting on tenterhooks for um, products that, you know, people can basically lick a um, piece of paper and get an answer in a few minutes. Um, that, in my view, is is kind of where we need to go from a uh, public health surveillance standpoint. And, and you mentioned multiple tests. I, I want to just remind the audience, another article that we had covered was by, uh, Kusirka, and it was in the annals and earlier in 2020. And this was looking at the false negative rate of the of the PCR swab tests. And on the on the day someone's infected, according to that, and I, I believe it was about seven different studies that they had looked at to come to this conclusion, that there was a false negative rate on the day you're infected of like a hundred percent. And on the day before you develop symptoms, the false negative rate is still like 67%. On day five, the false negative rate is 38%. And the the peak of this test was around day eight. That was when someone, it seemed like, was was least likely to have a false negative. So there's this curve of like, the earlier you are in the infection, the less likely you are to have a positive PCR test. And then as you get out past like 21 days, it starts to fall off again, where you're more likely to to not have a positive test anymore. And I think that's made it really tricky. And that, to me, that's why it makes sense to, if you were going to just do multiple tests over time, you're more likely to pick someone up. And when someone, if I think someone has COVID and they get one negative test, I just don't believe it. Paul, do you have any, any thoughts on this? I know everything that you said made perfect sense and I have nothing to add. I'm still hung up on the the home test that actually comes with a machine and two AA batteries that you actually have to have to run it. I'm still, sorry. So I was digging the (laughs) FDA documents for that. (laughs) 
<laughs> so we can link to the uh, package insert for that for people. And uh, I like the fact that they said, uh, when you're swabbing your nose, your nasal passage five times, sometimes the swab can feel slightly uncomfortable or tickly, Paul. Yeah, we have to do both of them too. It's important. You have to do both nostrils. Both this isn't five a one times. and done. You have to go up the nose twice and then you a test kit that you actually have to put batteries into and walk away from for a half. The whole thing is fat. I want to test myself now just to see the process. It's probably well, Paul, I can I will write you for a test if you can figure <laughs> out where you can get one. Perfect. That is a deal. I'll report yeah. back. Okay, audience members, uh, ping us on Twitter if any of you have used this test or know how we can get it, if anyone's actually ordered it for a patient. I haven't yet ordered for a patient, but uh, bragging rights to the first person that that actually does this successfully. (laughs) Uh, Deb, are we missing anything else that we had planned to talk about? I think the thing that we really are missing is a video segment of Paul taking the at-home COVID (laughs) test. (laughs) And I and we mentioned sponsorships earlier. Um, Lucira, again, I'm open, um, <laughs> so just just DM me. Happy to happy to promote. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Ah, uh, that's the stuff. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast, or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Rahul, I thought you were going to go for it with the yummy there. That's why. You know, I am, my mind does not work as quickly as the rest of the group (laughs) because I missed an opportunity when you were talking about hydroxychloroquine, Paul. I was like, joke, insert joke now, do something. (laughs) I just said nothing. No, it was better that we're not there just a stony silence. So I'm glad we keep all that in. That was perfect. We need some like crickets sound effect or something. (laughs) Claire will put those in. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. You can send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Thank you to our super producer, Deb Gorth, soon to be Dr. Deborah Gorth after just a couple years, Deb. <laughs> and uh, also to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram. Tima Karganov is on our website and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Rahul Balvant Ganatra. And a gentle reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.bcohealth.org. It is easy to go there and just sign up for an account. Uh, we would be remiss at not thanking Stuart for composing the outstanding theme music that you're doubtless hearing behind our voices. Who put that music there? Why, none other than Claire Morgan of Not Early. So thank you for editing our audio as per always. And as usual, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.